The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning, everybody. It's um, really an honor to be here this week and to speak. You know, uh, you probably know this was to be homecoming week. We had to cancel that uh, due to there's some small construction going on on campus. And so if you've been here, which I know for sophomores, you've not uh, experienced a homecoming week, which is really a shame. We're going we're gonna to do everything we can to have that, of course, next year. But it's a huge event. It takes up a lot of great space. We invite all the alumni in and all, all other kinds of people. So we hope to get back to that soon. But uh, you've heard there's some great things going on this weekend still for you as students. And so we really look forward to um, you enjoying those things, despite the fact that homecoming has been uh, canceled this year, unfortunately. Um, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 12, because I wanted to start by reading that passage with you this morning. Or you can just listen as I read it, as you choose. Psalm 12. For the director of music, according to Sheminith, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says, we will triumph with our tongues we own our lips. Who is our master? Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. Well, it's become pretty common these days, unfortunately, even in Christian circles, to lament the state of today's youth. And there's nothing new under the sun, we know that. And you've all seen this, haven't you? A bunch of old people get together and they drink some bad coffee, and they complain about how kids today don't do this, or kids today don't know that. Remember when we used to do that? Yeah, they don't do that today. There's a plenty of, in my day, we used to do this and that. And I think that, in a sense, their message is this. They, they think, we're doomed because of what they see. Well, I agree, we are doomed. But we're not doomed because of this generation or because of that generation. We're all born in sin. But for Christ who has redeemed us, we would all be doomed eternally. So one of the things that ought to characterize any Christian's speech is a strong sense of humility, that the moment we begin to lament the current younger generation, and that's all of you out there, we're indicting ourselves in the process as well. And no matter how many cups of Folgers, and I mean no disrespect to Folgers, but no how many cups of Folgers coffee, I don't know if you even know what Folgers coffee is, that's an old one, right? Um, 
But no matter how many of these we ingest, to get ourselves ginned up in the critique of today's youth, we must remember these things. But in this week at Cairn, when we normally anticipate a return of alumni to campus, those who have gone before you, and as you prepare to hear from an alum on Friday, Liz Givens, uh, who graduated more than 50 years ago, can you conceive of that? 50 years ago, more than that? Uh, you'll hear from her, she will decidedly not chastise you for spending too much time on your phones or not paying attention in this or that moment at chapel, or perhaps this moment or that moment. But during this week and thinking of this, I'd like to flip the script a little bit and tell you that I am quite honestly looking to you as our best and brightest hope, humanly speaking. You see, it's just a few weeks ago that I was traveling, as I often do, to visit alumni and some supporters of the university, and I happen to do what I often do when I stay in a hotel. I open the dresser drawer and take out the Bible, the actual physical Bible that the Gideons have put there. And if you don't know who the Gideons are, you can hit them up on a Google search and you'll find out. You'll probably find a lot of other things, but a particular group who puts Bibles in hotel rooms. In fact, I met one yesterday at Ocean City at an alumni event, um, and uh, he's an alum and is, is working with them. I stumbled upon that passage that we just read, Psalm 12, that day, I immediately began to think of wanting to share that with you. The upcoming generation, a word on our need for you to be the opposite of what this psalmist frames in the first and final verses, creating an inclusio, I believe, for those of you who are interested in those things. We need you to be those of whom it cannot be said, the faithful have vanished from among men. We need you to be those of whom it cannot be said that you are contributors to the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. You know, I've realized that I'm growing old. Now that may sound like a no-brainer. Of course you're aging. We're all aging. But this concept of actually being old happens over time. I used to always, out of deference to my elders, say, I know that I'm young, but, or it seems to me, even though I haven't lived that long, and this was my way of being respectful, but also acknowledging that they knew I was young. But then a funny thing started to happen. I began to realize that people your age viewed me as being much older than I actually feel. Despite my constantly clicking joints, back pain, slow recovery time, and overall drooping skeletal structure, I still feel pretty young overall. But it didn't help that my own children began to tell me that I was ancient. In fact, that's the word and the emphasis that some of them have used, ancient. And then my barber, the barbers, a hip dude under 30, laughed at me for laughing at him for not knowing bands from the 80s and 90s like U2 and New Order. Who are those, he said, you old man? Well, what's more, I'm finding that music that used to be for old people, like Stevie Nicks, now resonates with me, like when she sings, but time makes you bolder, even children get older, and I'm getting older now too. And just a few weeks ago, I was presenting to the Nexus workers about some alumni things, and they looked at me with blank stares when I referred to a database that we're using for you upcoming through the Pathway Center as the Cadillac of databases. I was very excited for that analogy there. Blank stares. And I quickly corrected. 
It's the Tesla of databases. And they were all with me. Oh, sounds great. Love Tesla. So you can Google Cadillac automobiles too and see what comes up. Cadillac, Cadillac style. Days gone by. You see, I can now say with T.S. Eliot's proof rock, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear my trousers rolled. And if that means anything to you, it probably means that you're a bit of an old soul yourself or just an English nerd like me. So now here I am, the old English nerd, quoting, quoting old poets, aging rock stars, proof that I'm headed toward the sunset rather than the sunrise. So where do we go with this? Because this is a pretty depressing, formerly homecoming week talk, isn't it? About my getting old and all of us hurtling together toward death. <laughs> I shared this. <laughs> That's it. See it. No. <laughs> Lunchtime. No. Um, I, I have my eye on that clock. I do. I share this with my wife, and she said this is extremely depressing. I said, I know, I'm transitioning here. Um, so I could remind you that unlike what you thought, little miscommunication, the dilly bars are Friday. 100 dilly bars donated by an alum to the first uh, students who come to chapel. That's exciting and cheery, isn't it? A garden party Friday night, very cheery. Everyone dressed up, axe throwing. Uh, I can't believe that so few have heard of axe throwing. Who doesn't want to show, throw a sharp object and have it hit a, a target and hear a thunk? Uh, cool stuff on Saturday. Oh, maybe that'll make you feel better, but I actually think I should go here instead. I think I want to issue to you a clarion call today, if I may, for your generation. Not to chastise you, but as I already mentioned, to inspire you to see yourselves as just a few inches away yourselves from realizing that in the blink of an eye, 20 years will have gone by and you will be in my or others like my place. Realizing you are no longer looked to as the young whippersnapper to be taunted for your lack of experience, but rather you're in the middle of the arena being called up to address issues of cosmic significance. But you can start now. In the next 20 minutes, not preparing to lead, but to start leading this very hour. So Psalm 12 lists numerous characteristics of the evils of the day. You may recall them. Lying, flattery, haughtiness, self-serving tongues and people. Men and women who serve themselves, oppress those who are weak. And wicked souls who strut about arrogantly, praising the prolific, vile acts of humanity. You know, we don't need to do much to confirm these truths, you see, evil and its gross manifestations is nothing new. So what are you to do about this? What is your generation to contribute right now to push back against the tide of wickedness which has forever been part of the ebb and flow of human experience and society? Well, let me give you four quick things to focus on, each presenting the counter to what the vile and the wicked do. And this is the calling for Christians. We're going to breeze through two, linger on two, and then you can go to lunch. It's a total of four. Two and two is four. Here's the first, telling the truth. And I think I can say succinctly, and simply end this point, that you should check out Dr. Plummer's message on the word love from two weeks ago. Now, my friend, Dr. Plummer, I appreciate it so much how precise he is in his word choice. So I'm directing you right to the tape. But having listened to that myself and some of my interpretation, uh, if just, I've noticed even a few of the comments that I wrote here today were inspired by what 
he said. If you were here when he spoke, reflect on that. If you did not, listen to the chapel podcast. You can go find those. It's hard to crystallize down that whole, whole talk, which is why you should go to the tape, but I'd echo and expand this way. We need our alumni to tell the truth, and this may mean offending some people. Doing so in love, based on the truth of Scripture, does not mean that you are mean. Quite the opposite, loving someone well enough to tell them something they need to hear is essential and is desperately needed. So echoing that talk, speak the truth in love. The second is this, not believing the following lie, that you, that I, that you are the center of the universe. The violent chapter 4 says sardonically, we own our own lips. Who is our master? This is akin to that which you have seen yourself, no matter where you've grown up or what your experience is. The child who points to the adult and says, you are not the boss of me. What does this look like for us practically? Well, for one thing, I'm hopeful that your generation can begin to return to those truths that are derived from the scriptures, not the cause of the day. Have you ever realized how many causes there are? Now, I want to tread lightly here because I really don't mean to be flippant about important causes. But in terms of the sheer number, just a fraction, you know, we are to be mindful of injustice, racism, abortion, the environment, causes in other countries, causes in our country, homelessness, poverty, disability, the spread of COVID, diseases like cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, leukemia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, autism, just to name a few. None of these causes deserves to be ignored, but in recent days, support for raising awareness seems to have become a mandate that everyone have his or her own cause and mandate that cause for all others. Sometimes, it may be just me, but you may find yourself wondering, is this cause really about those suffering or more about how I hope others will view me, the center of the universe, because I am advancing this particular cause? In short, we all need to go to the scriptures, search them, and ask of God, what would you have me do? You know what I think is the unifying cause and rallying cry for all Christians? It is the gospel. The gospel is our unifying rally cry as Christians. So if you want to put it this way, our cause is the gospel. So I implore you, at the very least, to be cautious about which very meaningful causes fill your mind and time and ensure that the measure of your actions is not the world's or your own thinking, but the Scriptures. Thirdly, in verse 5, we see that the righteous man or woman will protect the weak. This can be tricky sometimes for us. Who are the weak, you may ask? Well, this is a good question because this is probably something that has changed over time and would really require a careful study of uh, the, the wording used in the Scripture. But perhaps a suggestion might be to answer that question with this question. Who are the vulnerable, those who cannot protect themselves? And here, indeed, we do have one of the many mandates in Scripture to protect the vulnerable. And this is why it's so essential that we carefully derive our causes from the scripture. 
Christians should ask themselves, who are those who cannot protect themselves and how can I ensure that I am not contributing to their oppression? Fourthly, and perhaps most essentially based on Psalm 12, 6 through 7, those verses, I implore you to know for yourselves that God's word is flawless. He will keep us safe and protect us from the wicked forever. Don't just think because you grew up with this information that it is true. Ensure that you actually know it and believe it deep down in your own gut. Trust in God yourselves above all else. You know, some time ago in the church, people began to get concerned that the message of the gospel, with all its talk of sin and separation from God and hell and these other truths, that these things would be offensive. And in many ways, they are. So it's become common to avoid these subjects, these words, and even to try to make these things ambiguous, referring, for instance, to sin as how we all don't do as well as we should, and so on. A friend pointed out to me recently that he has begun to feel like our worship services, including the songs we sing and the words we use and the atmosphere that we create, do not match much of the tone of Scripture, which in so many places equates the Christian life as a hardened and hardy rough road, more akin to equipping soldiers for combat than buttering up sensitive and supple souls for a season of sunbathing on a Disney cruise. He said with characteristic simplicity and honesty about a time in church, I was looking around church, not judgingly, but wondering, are these people being prepared for battle? Because it's a battle out there. And in short, he said, we have become soft, and I think I agree. You know, some have pointed out, rightly, that the inaccurate conflation of the Christian faith with American-style patriotism can possibly lead to a warped theology of what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth. And this is true. Some have argued that the use of militaristic language, like when previous generations, like mine and those before us, sang in Sunday school, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. They argued that this can be harnessed for secular political gain that has nothing to do with the gospel. And that can also be true. But there is also this fact from scripture, that God's word is full of language that speaks of the Christian life as if it were an epic battle, or at least an epic struggle. Humanly speaking, this may Draw to mind the popular artistic renderings of battles we've seen depicted in modern films with great speeches like Maximus, Decimus, Aridius claiming that what we do in life echoes through eternity. Or Aragorn shouting at the Black Gates, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, a day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. It is not this day. Or even in reality and in history, in many of our recent memories, either by actually living through 9-11 or just seeing the video footage we recalled just a couple weeks ago, our own former American president 
with a failing bullhorn issuing a rallying cry that I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people who knock these buildings down will hear from all of us soon. Oh yes, this rhetoric moves us. That's what it's designed to do. And though it is offensive to some, the Bible too issues martial-sounding calls to put on the full armor of God, to gird up our loins in the entire eschatological play, that is, the end of times, regardless of your view of eschatology, is not described in Scripture as a tea party, but a battle of the most cosmic significance signaling the most stunning and consequential official defeat of the devil and his forces. Now, here's the trick. Here's the trick to be biblical. We are called to figurative arms. We are, but for the Christian, we must ask this. Who is the enemy against which we are to be prepared for? It is not a political party. It's not the other Christians that I don't like. It's not the trends and ideas that seem off to me. What does the scripture say? Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In short, to quote another unlikely film source, Parabellum, prepare for war. Prepare us for war, our walk and our worship and our churches should be doing. But remember, our struggles are not against flesh and blood. Our enemy, the devil, is far more sinister, conniving, and less obvious in his strategic, strategic successes than you or I would ever consider. So as we conclude our time, I am pleased to say to you students, you are our future alumni. You are the future newly married. You are the future Christian single people. You are the future young moms and dads. You are the future middle-aged people. You are the future elderly. But your obligation has already begun and been called up. And humanly speaking, the degree to which you prepare for spiritual battle and remain laser-focused on the gospel above all else is our last best hope, humanly speaking. Oh, yes. God can and will do exactly as he wills. But his call is always upon the believer to be faithful, to make ready, and participate in the spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. What this means, to borrow the words or phrase of a famous Reformed theologian, is that right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. You get 60 seconds per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours per day, and then the day is gone for good. We've just used nearly one of those hours this morning, and now it's gone. So what will you do with the next hour, and the next, and the next? It's my earnest hope and prayer that you will begin to lead the church this day and ensure that the psalmists cry, help, Lord, for the godly are no more, 
can be answered with this. No, they are not lost. They have not vanished. Even now, I am sending the current and future generation of Christian leaders who will follow my words, die to self, and live for me. Let me pray and close our time this morning. Almighty God, make us bold in your cause, strong in your strength, aware of our own weakness and sin, and fitted for the tasks by your grace that you have called us to. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.